0: The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org.
1: Good afternoon, everybody. This is Steve Orleans, president of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and today I'm joined by Professor David Dunoon, an old friend who is currently professor of politics and economics at NYU and director of the NYU Center on U.S.-China Relations. But he's here today because he recently completed the publication of a three-volume series on China, the United States, and the future. And in this case, the future, one is the future in Central Asia, one is the future in Southeast Asia, and one is the future in Latin America. So he takes these three places and looks at how the United States and China interact. What made you do this?
0: Well, uh, first of all, Steve, it's a pleasure to be here, and I appreciate your your hosting this. Uh, It's basically uh, my feeling is that eighty to ninety percent of the writing on U.S.-China relations is about the bilateral interaction between uh, essentially Washington and Beijing, and this is very critical. And uh, in the early period, certainly the Nixon-Kissinger period when the focus is on strategic interaction, that was makes perfect sense. But uh, in the last 20 years, as the economic component and the cultural components became more important, uh, what it, we wanted to do was take a look at how the US and China interacted in different regions of the world. And also in regions where neither China was dominant nor the US was dominant. So the reason we picked Central Asia was that China has shown a, a strong recent interest in that And of course the U.S. has a recent interest because of Afghanistan. But it looks like the U.S. will be a down in our role there, whereas China's role is rising. So it's a nice comparison between a declining role for the U.S. and a rising role for China. In Southeast Asia, uh, both countries have had long-term interests, uh, and they are actually in competition in a number of important ways. Uh, So uh, that shows a different style of their interaction. In Latin America, What's interesting is that the Chinese actually have much bigger economic profile than most Americans know. Uh, the Chinese have uh, invested over $140 billion in Latin America, uh, yeah. and they've made loans of more than $110 billion. Uh, plus, they have a very uh, secret uh, private arrangement, essentially, with the Venezuelan government to handle the heavy oil that the Venezuelans produce. And uh, I can't tell you the exact amounts there. But the the combination of this new investment by China, the trade, and the Venezuela deals, uh, mean that China has made a big opening to Latin America. Are you going to do a fourth volume on Africa? uh, Probably not, because there's enough other uh, issues.
1: Uh, So you also felt not only were these areas where there was this interesting interaction, but it wasn't heavily reported?
0: Yes. And, and where we could uh, highlight the differences in the way China and the U.S. respond. Uh, in, in Central Asia, the U.S. interest has been very limited. It's been on getting access <coughs> to Afghanistan. So it's things like base rights, transit rights, things like that. Right. China has much broader interest mm-hmm. and, and therefore we wanted to see how it looks. Uh, in Latin America, of course, the U.S. has been dominant for 150 years, but now China is beginning to uh, increase its role. Mm-hmm.
1: How has BRI affected kind of the Belt Road initiative yeah. affected kind of the analysis on uh, Central Asia and Southeast Asia? Well, obviously much less so, Latin America.
0: Yeah, it's very significant. Uh, first of all, China has been successful with uh, getting access to Kazakhstan, which has been for a long time essentially a client state of Russia. Uh, and the, the sort of uh, hermit kingdom in Central Asia is Turkmenistan. Turkmenistan now has the world's third largest gas supply. China has been successful with getting them to cooperate. And they're building both railroads and other roads uh, to get this, uh, uh, these hydrocarbons out. Uh, so China has been skillful at uh, presenting its case uh, and getting cooperation. The, the, the Belt and Road Initiative is even broader, however, and uh, most people have focused on Central Asia as an access point to Europe, but increasingly, if you look at where the roads and railroads are being built, um, China's focus is also on South Asia, uh, particularly the China-Pakistan economic corridor, uh, and also going down into the Middle East. So I think China has been extraordinarily uh, imaginative in uh, looking at different ways to increase its profile. Mm
1: -hmm. Now, you've got obviously more than a couple of dozen authors here in in these three volumes. What conclusions should we reach on the U.S.-China relationship based on the interactions in these three places?
0: Well, I think the first element that is absolutely critical is that China does not have a singular foreign policy. China calculates and sort of focuses its foreign policy depending upon the region. Um, I would argue that they have not been particularly successful in East Asia. Uh, They took a rather hostile stance towards Japan over the Daoyu-Senkaku Islands issue. Um, They took a very hard line on the Spratly Islands question and the South China Sea, uh, and that produced a negative reaction. They've been much more skillful in Central Asia. So what I would look for if I was advising uh, U.S. government people to think about is... Looking at, at the sophistication of what the Chinese are doing, in Latin America, they're going country by country and seeing if they can find somebody to work with. If they can't, then they move on to the next country. So in Brazil, they were originally focused on things like soybeans and trade, right. but then they, when they discovered oil and gas, they moved immediately into that. And the, the uh, offshore oil in Brazil is close enough in that China has the right technology for that that China is not yet at the level to go into deep water uh, exploration. But, so what they've done is to go into each region and find something that, that works. Uh, unfortunately, American foreign policy is often uh, too simplistic and doesn't look at the variation by region.
1: We have a, uh, a new national security strategy put forward by the, uh, the Trump administration which talks about China being a strategic competitor of the United States. How, in these three regions, when I agree they're under-researched in the United States, how does that strategy fit in there? Does it make sense? Well, I think it is correct
0: to say that the U.S. and China are competitors in Southeast Asia. We're competitors uh, for the naval access, uh, the Seventh Fleet, cruises throughout the entire region. Uh, We don't home port in Singapore, but we have access to the bases in Singapore. Um, And of course, in the past, we had much uh, higher profile relations with the Philippines. Um, The Chinese want to expand their capabilities. What they're doing, uh, it's interesting, is trying to go around the choke points. They're trying to avoid the Malacca Straits. Uh, On trade, they've set up a new pipeline which is going to run from Burma uh, on the Andaman Sea uh, up to Kunming uh, and also in terms of strategic options they're going to Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, even Afghanistan and and increasing their profile. So their goal is to essentially uh, send a warning signal to India and also uh, let the US know that they intend to have a presence. In Latin America they're not trying anything military except for small amount of small arms, but um, they they are letting us know that they have an interest. Uh, you may be familiar that there is a Chinese businessman who's trying to promote a new canal in Nicaragua. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and of It's course, not happening, is my understanding. No, it's, it's not going to go ahead At, with him. It doesn't mean it won't eventually go ahead. But, uh, of course, the real thing is the Panama Canal is now managed by uh, Hutchison Wampau, uh, and so uh, the modernization there will probably be the first step. Mm-hmm. But China also has very close contacts in Cuba. in Richardson- Wampa being a Li ka in um, operation yeah. from Hong Kong. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so uh, I think what they're trying to do is find places where they can gain more access. And so uh, I would say it's, it's competition but at a lower level. So uh, I don't think, uh, I haven't read the details of the national security strategy yet, but um, I, I doubt if they are making these differentiations which we need to make because Central Asia is not a place where the U.S. is going to make a major investment, either strategically or, or economically, whereas we already have that in Southeast Asia. So I think what the U.S. needs is to
1: have more differentiation between the regions. How much of the $140 billion China has invested in uh, Latin America is natural resource related.
0: Um, more than sixty percent, and
1: 60%. so uh, it's it's the
0: great majority of it. Um, the focus is immediately on Brazil, uh, also on Bolivia and Peru. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of agriculture, uh, the Chinese are very extensively involved in. Uh, both uh, Argentina and Brazil,
1: Hmm. but they're smaller dollar men. So what it sounds like, the way you're describing this, is kind of in Southeast Asia, there is a strategic competition of sorts, whereas in Central Asia and in uh, Latin America, it's kind of doesn't exist because U.S. interests are not sufficiently strong in Central Asia. Yeah, that will create a strategic competition, and in um, Latin America, Chinese interests are purely economic, and they exactly. never will be anything but that. Well,
0: but we don't know what will be fifty years from now. But remember, uh, Xi Jinping has said that he expects China to be a global power in two thousand and fifty. Right. I think that's a reasonable uh, expectation. Yeah. So we're talking uh, thirty-two years. Uh, if you look back thirty-two years and see the enormous transformation in China. There's no reason to expect
1: that that couldn't happen. Um, you were, if my recollection is right, you were you were Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense yes. a few years back.
0: Yes.
1: Is it good or useful to characterize kind of the competition as strategic? Or well, we, are I, we better <clears throat> off saying it's diplomatic or you know, I've always kind of as a student of Harry Harding, there were three levels of competition. There's uh, the lowest, which is economic, and we compete with everybody. But the middle level, which is diplomatic, and you know we compete with Canada, France, England, Japan diplomatically. That's okay too. And strategic, the only country we've had a strategic rivalry with since World War II has been the Soviet Union. Yes. Is this healthy?
0: Well, I think it's intellectually honest to say that strategic competition is on the horizon. Again, I, I don't want to comment on the uh, the exact wording because I don't know. Exa- I've heard the same uh, use of that word, strategic competition. The question is, are they saying it's there now or it will be? Uh, it also depends, of course, uh, what happens to future presidents. Uh, what, will the directions that Trump has outlined uh, be taken up by other presidents or not? Uh, and also, who, who will
1: follow Xi Jinping? We have run out of time, but I think this discussion has given the listeners a taste of what's in this three-volume set, China, the United States, and the Future of Central Asia, the Future of Southeast Asia, and the Future of Latin America, compiled by my friend David DeNoon. Thank you so much for joining us today. Great. Thank you, Steve. I
0: appreciate your hosting us.